would have thought of that version of his, of his psalm that he wrote. So pause. Thank you so much. You all have been so kind to, to Ron and I, so loving. And uh, I've told a number of people about the fact that it seems like if I just mention an idea that I have, it just kind of happens. I don't know when I first said, we ought to knock that wall down, and yesterday it was gone. I think I mentioned a cherry pie one Sunday. But... <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you so much. And God is blessing. God is moving. God uh, is doing great things in our midst. And I'm going to turn these microphones off before the batteries die. This one's off? Okay, thank you, Carly. Red one's on. Got it. Thank you. A little housekeeping. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5 as we continue our series on the life of David and his, his psalms then, and 96 is our chosen psalm for today. But as we read this story in the life of David, you'll see some clear linkage to those things. David wrote out of his heart of his relationship for the Lord. We got a whole book of psalms, half of them or more, came from the pen of David. The psalms that came from David's heart came from his life experiences. And so, I, I, I want you to think for a moment, when, when you live through an experience, when God takes you through something in your life, I want to encourage you to write a song. No. <laughs> Actually, if you have that gift. But I want to encourage you to remember and make sure you can remember, because we're pretty quick to forget, aren't we? Yeah. We're pretty quick to forget. I sure am at my increasing age. Second Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your flesh and blood, in the past, say in the past, in the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. That's timely this morning, isn't it? And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their leader. When all the elders of Israel, verse 3, had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. May the Lord add understanding to the reading of his word together this morning. Friends, it was time. Say, it was time. It was time. It was time. The reign of King David 
was truly beginning. His training, his mentoring, his testing had been completed. We find in the scriptures that David was actually anointed as king three different times. Three different times. The first was in a passage that we looked at several weeks ago, and you will remember the prophet Samuel went to Bethlehem at God's direction to meet with Jesse and select the next king. We remember that the sons of Jesse paraded before Samuel and there were none chosen until Jesse mentioned, by the way, there's one more. By the way, there's one more, the shepherd boy. David was summoned from the hillside and he was immediately chosen and Samuel anointed him. The second anointing is found in, in an earlier passage in 2 Samuel in chapter 2. David and his wives had, had relocated themselves in the region of Hebron in Judah according to God's direction. The first couple of verses of 2 Samuel 2 indicate that David had inquired of the Lord as to where he should go, and they went to Hebron. We find that when David arrived in Hebron, that the men of Judah anointed him as king over Judah. Just one tribe of the twelve, but a starting point. But a starting point. And a third anointing, the third occasion of anointing is found in our text in 2 Samuel 5 that we just read. We read, starting in verse 1, that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Say, all the tribes. You know how tough it is to get everyone together? And, and they said to David with one voice, we are your flesh and blood. And in the past, while Saul was king, you were the military leader. And we watched you in action. And we watched the victories as they took place. But the Lord said to you, the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. Say shepherd military leader, general, warrior, shepherd, shepherd. When all the elders, say all the elders, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David as king over Israel. Now note, friends, Note that David had found favor with these people. It says that all the tribes had come together. When finally it was time for, for David to be anointed and chosen and set in place as king over all the nations, say all the nations, we find that they all had come together and they all had said to David, we acknowledge and we praise David for his military leadership under King Saul. But I find it most interesting 
that the elders of Israel knew about the fact that God had chosen David. The elders knew that this was the chosen one. Not just chosen by popular acclaim. He didn't just win the popular vote and the, and the electoral college. <laughs> he was chosen by God. And, and somehow, I don't, know how, I, I don't know how that story got out, but when we read the story about, about Jesse and his sons and that occasion with, with the prophet Samuel, somehow that story filtered its way through the nation. And Israel found out that, yes, one had been chosen. It was an important thing for Israel to find out because it was a struggle under Saul. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. So he was not chosen by the leaders of Israel, by the elders of Israel, simply because of his warrior status, simply because of his leadership ability, simply because he planted a, a round, smooth stone in the forehead of the great warrior Goliath. He was chosen by the elders of Israel because he had a relationship with Jehovah God. Pause. We need to think about who we vote for. Pause button off. You will shepherd my people, Israel. I think this is remarkable, friends. In taking the step of putting David in the office of king, the elders of all the tribes of Israel not only recognized his military leadership, but they also recognized the calling on his life. Say calling. They recognized the calling on the life of David, and they chose him according to that calling. we got to think about who we vote for. Sorry. Sorry. Listen. The calling of God on the lives of his servants always has the care of, of God's people embedded within it. Did you catch that? The calling on the lives of God's servants always has embedded in it the care of God's people. Shepherd. Say shepherd. What's the role of the shepherd? Care, care for the sheep. To care for the sheep. They not only chose a warrior, they chose a shepherd. They chose a shepherd, one who would care for the sheep. My calling, your calling, all of those who serve God always serve his people. Put a Scott Snyder commentary out there. Read the scriptures of the people that are called by God. They always care for his people. Amen. You can't set that aside and say, oh, I'm only going to do the administrative piece. 
or I'm only going to do the warrior piece. No. Listen, God, God's love for us is so strong in who he is that he wants to make sure that those that he chooses, those that he calls, those that he puts on mission, the forefront of their thinking is caring for people. Never goes away. The forefront of a preacher is caring for people. The forefront of an evangelist is caring for people, Rose. The forefront of a teacher is caring for people. It's always paramount. I think it's big time that the elders chose the shepherd. Fulfillment of the calling that David had first gotten in the camp of his father Jesse had come to pass. The training ground of the hillside and the battlefield had come to fruition. Did you hear that? The training ground of the hillside and the sheep and the training ground of the battlefield and Goliath had brought David to this place. We could stop right here. But I have, I have something very, very exciting to move forward to here. When God walks us through seasons processes, enduring hardships and fighting battles. He is preparing us. He is preparing you. He is preparing me for the true calling in our lives. We have this tendency to see hard days, difficult experiences as some kind of punishment. What is really happening so many times is that our Lord is walking us through the fires of testing in preparation. He has our long-range outlook in his sights. What is boredom on the hillside with the sheep, what is pain and death on the battlefield, is preparation for this day. He will be shepherd of his people Israel. Things are lining up for the future, friends. David, after a man after God's own heart, would be the shepherd of the sheep that foreshadows the coming of the great shepherd. The Messiah of Israel. The great king. The king of kings. The Lord Jesus. We see in the story of David a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus to come. Don't you love it when you see Jesus in the Old Testament? Yes. One of the names of the Lord Jesus throughout the Gospels is Son of David. So David becomes the king of Israel. And there was work to do. Say work to do. There was some strategic military work to do. And a victory against the Philistines occurred with the help of God. Pause button. If you've seen the news the last couple of days, pray for Israel. Pause button off. 
There was military work to do and a, Philist, a, a victory over the Philistines. There was some construction work to do in Jerusalem. Some, some work to bring the city back to its beauty and to its proper place as the capital of Israel and the city of God. It had deteriorated under Saul. But most important, say most important. Most important and very high on the priority list of King David was some spiritual work that needed to be done in the nation. Revival. Renewal. A return to God was on David's heart. Under King Saul, the spiritual health of the nation was in decline. I said, under King Saul, the spiritual health of the nation, the relationship between the nation and its God had deteriorated. And the presence and the blessing of God was less and less evident in Israel. One symbol, one indication of the spiritual state of the nation was that the very symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, had been lost from Jerusalem and separated from the people of Israel. David recognized this. Remember, he was called a man after. The Ark of the Covenant had been constructed during the time of Moses, about 400 years before this. God gave very specific instructions, design blueprints to Moses for the creation of the, of the central place of worship in Israel in that day, the tabernacle. We find some of these specific instructions in the book of Exodus, including a detailed description of the Ark of the Covenant. You would say, Scott, Pastor Scott, how do we know what the Ark of the Covenant looked like? I'll tell you how we know. It's described in tremendous detail in Exodus chapter 25. And I'm going to read that passage to you while a picture of it comes up on the screen, Mike. Exodus 25. Have them build an ark, not a Noah's ark. Ark in this case means a box of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Friends, we know how big it was. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out and make a gold molding around the top of it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry it. Say to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. Then put the ark, put inside the ark, the tablets of the law of Moses. The stone tablets were to be put in, were to be put in the box. The covenant of the law, which I will give you, 
Verse 17, make an atonement cover, the cover over the top of the box, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, and make two cherubim out of hammered gold, pure gold, at the ends of the cover. Make one cherubim on one end and the second cherub on the other end. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are, have, are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face one another, looking toward the, the, the cover, that cover also known as the mercy seat. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant of the law that I will give you. There, listen to me, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant, I will meet with you and will give you all my commands for the Israelites. Do you think this was an important article? Amen. He says, right there. Right there. Right there over the ark. Right there over the mercy seat, which, by the way, annually was sprinkled with the blood of the Passover lamb for the forgiveness of the sin of the people. Right there above the mercy seat, I will meet with you. I think I've mentioned that, that over the years I've been a student of Moses' tabernacle. All the detail we have of the ark, we also have of the beautiful, beautiful seven-lamp lampstand. We also have of the table of showbread. We also have of all the materials and the size of the, of the tent of meeting where God met with his people. We have the exact size and the materials of the sacrificial altar outside where the, where the animals were slain as sacrifices for sin. Every detail. The colors of the linens that were used to make the tent. One of these days, we'll get into that. You want to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Study the tabernacle. Every detail... Every size, every material, and every design were specified by God. Say specified. They were important symbolic details. And Moses saw to it that the ark and all the other items were built exactly as God had specified. Do you think this was important stuff? God specified it in tremendous detail to Moses. And here we find... Many years later, that the ark was separated from his people. And we find that David longed to have the ark back where it belonged. You remember when I said there was spiritual work to do? David longed for the ark to be back in Jerusalem, to be, to be in the midst of of Israel, the children of God. That that, that that symbol of the blessing and the dwelling and the constant presence of God would again find itself in the midst of his people. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 6. David brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bela in Judah to bring up from there what? 
the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. David and 30,000 of his best set out on a mission. It wasn't a military mission, it was a spiritual mission. It was a spiritual mission to bring back the ark. Verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ohio, Ohio, I'll call him Ohio. Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. And David and all of Israel were celebrating. Say celebrating. We're celebrating with all their might. Before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, drums, and cymbals, and saxophones. <laughs> David's heart, his intentions were great, weren't they? It was his priority to get the, heart, to get the ark back where it belonged. But unfortunately, listen, unfortunately the process, the transportation plan was flawed. David's heart was right. His intention was noble, but in his zeal, he ignored specific precepts that God had put in place for the carrying of the ark. The ark was never to be transported on any kind of conveyance. We see here that they had put it on what? On a new cart. The only persons, say only persons, the only persons who had God's authorization to carry the ark were the Levites, the priesthood. Chuck Swindoll writes, the problem is that David had not done his homework. We often get in trouble when we don't do our homework. When we think we see pretty clearly what the Lord's will is, and so in expediency or in convenience, usually in a hurry, we dash off and we do it our way. David didn't do his homework. We often hear the phrase, the devil is in the details. I tell you that in this case, God is in the details. The detail was the Levites carry the ark. Remember the, remember the, the rings and the, four, and the four staves that were used to carry the ark by who? The Levites only. In fact, a particular group of the Levites were the only ones to ever be able to carry the ark. But David and crew put it on a new cart. God is in the details. I want to say to you at this point that he is interested in the details of our lives. I want to say to you at this point that he cares about the small things and that they line up in your life. You see, it's not always the huge, life-altering situations that God is working in. 
He loves you at every place. He loves you in every detail. He loves you in all circumstances and in all situations. God is in the details. Friends, there is God's will and God's way. There is God's will and God's way. Both of them have to line up. God's way without God's will leads to confusion and lack of clarity in your mission. Can I say that again? God's way without God's will leads to confusion and an unclear mission. Now listen to this. God's will without God's way leads to good intentions but all kinds of problems in the process. It was a hard lesson for David and the others to learn. And if you continue to read the story, which I will not do this morning, there was tragedy associated with it. But eventually, David learned the lesson. Say, David learned the lesson. David learned the lesson. Now, one of the complexities, friends, let me, let me pause for a second here and say that one of the complexities of studying the Scriptures, and particularly in this passage, is that of parallel Scriptures. Okay? In other words, the same basic story, but with some additional or more descriptive details in a parallel passage. Another example of this, clearly, is the fact that we have four accounts of the Gospels, right? Written by four different authors, the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, providing four different perspectives on the life and ministry of Jesus. So we've been reading in 2 Samuel, but there is a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. As I said, eventually, David learned the lesson. Learned the lesson. He learned the lessons of the ark, God's specific instructions. Look at these verses in 1 Chronicles 15 and 1. 1 Chronicles 15.1, after David had constructed buildings for self in the city of David, he prepared a place. Say, prepared a place. He prepared a place for the ark of God, and he pitched a tent for it. And then David said, no one but the Levites. <laughs> See how he had gotten ahead of himself in the previous effort? Put it on a new cart. But in this passage, verse 2, he says, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them. Say, chose them. David knew about the Lord choosing, didn't he? David knew about, the, about being chosen of the Lord. And he looked back and he said, Hold it. The Levites were chosen for this task. Say, chosen. Friend, what are you chosen for? What has God tapped you on the shoulder and dumped a jar of symbolic oil over your head? I wasn't even going to go there. What has he chosen you for? We, we, we see that, the, that, that, that David then assembles all of Israel to bring up the ark of the Lord as he had prepared it. So we see that the proper place had been prepared. The proper people, the Levites, were in place. Now the stage was set. The coast was clear. The way had been made. Let the procession begin. 
Let the praise begin. Come on. Let the praise begin. Let the celebration commence. The ark, the most precious of items, had been returned to Jerusalem in the midst of his people. Let the celebration begin. And it says that they celebrated and they praised and they worshiped God with all their might. When's the last time you worshiped with all your might? It's an interesting term. You see, you see, David, whose heart was after God, wanted nothing more, and there was nothing more precious to him than to have the presence of God in the midst of the nation that he was ruling. There was spiritual work to be done. There was revival to happen. There was renewal to take place. And with God as the center again of the nation, those things could take place. I have preached a long time. A few applications for our day and time. A few applications. Number one, the presence of God is still of, a, of paramount importance. Back in the beginning of September, I preached a message entitled, Unless You Go With Us, based on a quote from Moses saying to God, Unless you go with us, we don't want to go. Amen. It was obvious that Moses had learned to highly value the presence of God in his life. In this instance, on this occasion, the presence of God was symbolized by the return of the ark. King David initiated that effort. He saw the importance of not just the ark, but the return of worship of the one true God to the nation. David wanted to see revival. Oh, that we would desire and pray for revival in our nation. A return to the things of God. Quickly, number two, God's will and God's way work hand in hand. God's will and God's way work hand in hand. We hear the phrase, putting the cart before the horse. <laughs> God desires that when we walk with him, that he would guide us and that we would follow his instructions and his roadmap. Third, quickly, God's presence is worth celebrating. <laughs> hallelujah. With a thousand hallelujah. God's presence is worth celebrating. And fourth, true praise takes place in the whole person. All that you are. All his might. Heartfelt, all-encompassing expressions of praise involve the whole person. Mind and soul and body. The whole person is free to praise. The whole person is free to worship. The whole person is free to celebrate in the presence of the Lord. The text tells us that as the ark was entering the city that David danced with all his might, and all the procession was going on, and they had the full band, the full orchestra gone. The Bible is not saying to us that you and I need to dance as expressions of worship, but I believe that we are being taught that worship involves the whole person. And that is what we long for. As our hearts are turned towards Him, that there should be nothing that holds us back from worship. I said 
There should be nothing that holds us back from worship. They'll think I'm some kind of radical. They'll think I'm kind of extreme. Church of God only raises one hand. <laughs> Sorry. God has, God has put you in a body for his glory. And praise and worship is part of that, pic- part of that picture. <laughs> I don't know that I'll forget uh, anytime soon our young man, Jaron, who, who, who was at the piano that morning, he leaned up to me and he said, they're all singing. <laughs> it blessed my heart. As a pastor, it blessed my heart. Because engaging in worship is one of the most precious things that we can do, you guys. It's one of the most precious things that you can do. It's one of the most important things that you can do. Because you acknowledge that he is God and you ain't. So I just, I just want to encourage you to, to, to give him praise. I want to encourage you to worship him. And because I need to stop now, I want to I encourage you to read. I want to encourage you to read Psalm 96 this week. Because I was going to preach through Psalm 96 yet. Read Psalm 96, which was, by the way, the... The, the psalm that the, that the gentleman sang for us a little bit earlier, and look for words of worship. Look for words of worship. Look for words like exalt. Look for words like uh, made the heavens is in there. Look for words of worship this week in Psalm 96. That's your homework instead of me preaching another 45 minutes. <laughs> Let's stand and sing our... Uh,